quickly um, do this little um, song. It goes like this. Jesus, we are here. Jesus, we are here. Savior, we are here. We are here for you. Holy Spirit, we are here, our daddy, we are here, Jesus, we are here, we are here for you. Amen. Amen. Yes. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount Olives, he, went, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloak on the, on the, on the, on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he, as he went along, People spread their, their cloaks on the road. When he had near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. May we not keep quiet in prison our God. May the stones not cry out in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Wilson. We are in tax season right now, and, uh, and this year, why don't you try this? Instead of filing your taxes, um, why don't you send a letter to Revenue Canada that says this, Dear Revenue Canada, paying taxes might work for some people, but it conflicts with my core values. Deep inside of me, I am a non-taxpayer, and in order to be true to myself, I've decided I'm not going to pay taxes this year. Go ahead and try that and see how far you get. How far will you get? Next time a police officer pulls you over for a ticket, try this. You know, officer, uh, driving the speed limit might be your idea of what I need to do, but there is a speeder deep inside me that needs to be expressed. 
And so I feel like I would not be true to myself if I had to pay this speeding ticket. Um, there, there is something within us that I think our culture breeds that kind of bucks the idea of authority. That um, it, it wants us to think that we are the primary authority in our own lives. We're in a series of sermons right now about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And in the season of Lent, now from now until Easter, we're going to be um, learning and preaching from the sections of Luke that have to do with the Passion Week of Jesus. The four Gospel writers devoted about half of their material to the last week of Jesus' life on earth, beginning with his entry into Jerusalem, which is what we've just had read for us today, and walking through Good Friday, his crucifixion, and to the resurrection one week later. And so we are this morning now starting with Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, on the back of a donkey and coming into Jerusalem as the king, presenting himself as the messianic king. And we're going to kind of look at that story this morning and understand a little bit about what the kingship of Jesus actually means and what it means for us. The occasion for Jesus coming to Jerusalem is the celebration of the Passover. At the Passover feast every year, tens of thousands of Jews converged onto Jerusalem from all over the place, from, from northern Israel in Galilee. They came down, bypassing Samaria, and then coming into Judea and to Jerusalem. But they came from other places in the empire as well. Jews were scattered all over the place. Many Jews had not returned to Israel after the Babylonian captivity some 500 years before, and some of them would come every year for the Passover. And from all over the place, it would converge onto Jerusalem, swell the population of the city to a couple of hundred thousand at least, and celebrate this festival. Now, the Passover festival was a celebration of what was the defining event in the history of the Jews. It was when they had been delivered powerfully, miraculously, about 1,500 years earlier, from slavery in Egypt, when God through Moses, had led the people out of Egypt, formed them as a nation, and God called them to be his own people. That was kind of their birth as a people. And so every year they celebrated this, and it was a big, big deal. Uh, it's kind of like if you take the American 4th of July and combine it with Christian Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, kind of all rolled, rolled into one. It was not just a national holiday, it was a religious holiday, but it wasn't just a religious holiday, it was a national holiday. I mean, all of what it meant to be the people of God were wrapped up in the celebration of Passover. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem now from Galilee at the time of the Passover. And as many people did, he had, he had found his way to Jericho and was now going to come uh, across through the hill country to Jerusalem. Um, in Jericho, he's just healed a blind beggar at the side of the road, Bartimaeus. He's just had his interaction with Zacchaeus at Jericho. And now he begins his trek toward Jerusalem. And he wouldn't have walked alone, and not even just with him and the 12 disciples either. There would have been a whole host of pilgrims on this road. Just a line of people kind of constantly moving toward Jerusalem. And as they walked, we can be pretty sure that 
this, this line of pilgrims began to sort of coalesce around Jesus because of what he had done in Jericho, healing the beggar, because he was renowned as the prophet from Galilee, um, as the people around him, his disciples and the crowd that would have followed him as they began to converse with people from other regions that were on that road, interest in Jesus would have grown. And so a fairly large crowd is starting to travel together this 10-mile or so journey to Jerusalem. As they came out of the hill country, they would have seen Jerusalem in the distance and the golden top of the temple about two miles away. And the horizon, probably the blue of the Mediterranean, maybe some wind and some sea air in their faces. And they just, as they, Jerusalem comes into view, they probably let out a shout because this is where the temple was. They would have started telling the stories of their deliverance. At some point, they would have broken out into song and become, begun singing the Psalms of Ascent that we find in our book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm, I forget, about 110 to 120. These are the Psalms that they would have sung as they walked up to Jerusalem. So it would have been a happy crowd, an excited crowd. Now, just outside of Jerusalem, a couple of very small towns, one called Bethany and one called Bethphage. And here, Jesus stops. And he stops very deliberately because he's about to orchestrate an event. And for the first time in his three years of ministry, he is going to present himself publicly and unambiguously as the king of the Jews. He hasn't done this before. He's done miracles. He's done signs that have revealed who he was. But he's never actually made a definite point of communicating to people, I am the messianic king, the son of David. Hasn't done that before. Today, he's going to do that. So he's orchestrating a scene, and the script for this scene comes from the book of the prophets, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, where in between a pronouncement of judgment against Israel's enemies and a proclamation that through Israel, that Israel is going to kind of rise in ascendancy, the people of God are going to uh, succeed and influence their world. In between, right at the hinge point, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's the image that Jesus has in mind, and that's the scene that he's going to set up. And so he calls over two of his disciples, Nathaniel, come here, I need you. Um, bring Philip with you. I need you to go into Bethany. And as soon as you enter the town, you're going to see the colt of a donkey tied up. Just untie it and bring it here. Okay, I need it. If anyone asks you what you're doing, why you're taking it, just let them know that the Lord needs it, the Master needs it. And so they go and find things exactly as Jesus had said. I don't know if Jesus is being prophetic. I don't know if Jesus has made the arrangement in Bethany. Maybe it's Lazarus' donkey. I don't know. But the disciples go, and sure enough, they're untying the donkey, and someone says, hey, what are you doing? And they say, it's okay, the Master needs it. And they bring the donkey to Jesus. Now, in Bethany, for the disciples of Jesus to say, the master, 
People know who that is. It's not some sort of vague reference. People in Bethany knew who Jesus was and knew who his disciples were. Jesus has been in Bethany many times. It's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. Jesus has been in their homes. Not very long ago, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is not a large town, so Jesus is known in Bethany. He's a celebrity there. So as the disciples are bringing the donkey back to Jesus, you can bet that the word is spreading throughout Bethany. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. And people want to go see. They want to collect around where he is. Word begins to spread. They bring the donkey to Jesus and the disciples. It's interesting. They put their cloaks on the donkey and they they set Jesus on it. I just find that interesting as a detail. Jesus doesn't get on the donkey. They set him on it. I kind of envision uh, them kind of lifting. It's a Gatorade moment. Like, wahoo! They kind of, you know, pick Jesus up and set him down on the donkey. And then they lay their cloaks on the road also in front of the donkey. And Jesus then begins to ride. And there's a crowd. Not a huge crowd, but there is a crowd. And they join the main road from Jerusalem then, and now they begin to head toward the city. It's just a mile or two away. They can see it. It's right there. And they join other than pilgrims on the road. And again, I think word spreads, and the pilgrims then begin to collect and form a group around Jesus. And as they walk, they start singing and shouting, and it just becomes a festival, a party, a spectacle. They start singing the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King, the Son of David. One of these psalms of ascent that they would have sung on the way to Jerusalem at the Passover anyway. But now they're singing with Jesus in mind. And it gets loud, and they're happy. And then the crowd swells because a whole bunch of people from Jerusalem come rushing out to see Jesus. They have heard, maybe when Jesus stopped to arrange with the donkey, not everyone in the large crowd, maybe some of them went on to Jerusalem and spread the word that Jesus was coming. And so they get all excited and rush out. And here's why. The Gospel of John gives us interesting detail. Um, John chapter 12, verse 12. The large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done the sign. Jesus, who has raised somebody from, <laughs> raised somebody from the dead not too long before, and Jerusalem, I mean, word like that spreads. People in Jerusalem knew that Jesus, the prophet from Galilee, had been reported to raise someone from the dead. So now they start rushing out of the city. So suddenly from a moderate-sized crowd, suddenly you have a huge throng of people, and they are shouting, and they are singing, and the middle of it all is Jesus sitting on a colt riding into Jerusalem. Nobody who saw that would have mistaken the implications of what Jesus was doing. Nobody. Here's another little detail. You know the palm branches? We always think of, of people as waving palm branches. You know what they did with the palm branches? They laid them down. 
and Jesus rode across them. Um, Alexander the Great, King Agrippa, they had both entered Jerusalem at one point on a, uh, on a road lined with green boughs from the palm tree. It's kind of like us rolling out the red carpet. It was a, uh, it was a kingly procession. And it's Jesus, son of the carpenter, the rabbi without a home, the, the itinerant teacher riding into Jerusalem. And everybody knew what the picture represented. For the pilgrims who were coming to the Passover feast, um, it, in this case, it was, not, it was not just a pilgrimage. And people understood that Jesus was not just coming as a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover. This was very much a coronation. And people understood that that's what it was. In fact, Jesus himself had created the scene and meant it to be a coronation. Jesus' uh, kingship was, of course, a theme in Jesus' life, even though he never again stood anywhere and said, I am the king of the Jews, it was a theme of his life. Gabriel announced to Mary that the child that she would bear would be holy, would be called the son of God, and he would have the throne of David, and his kingdom would never end. The wise men from the east came, and who were they looking for? They were looking for the king of the Jews. Jesus' divine sovereignty and authority he exercised throughout his ministry. He calmed storms. He cast demons out of people. They were forced to obey him. He, he manipulated the elements by feeding 5,000 people and then some with a handful of food. People began to call Jesus the son of David, which was a distinctly royal term. And when they called him that, it revealed their own hopes that maybe this was, in fact, the promised messianic king. After one of his miracles, all the people said, ah, this is him. This is the messianic king. Let's make him king by force. And only by his own withdrawal from the scene did Jesus avoid them making him the king. People understood this about Jesus, that he was, he was a kingly representative of God. And on this day, he comes as king. When he's tried before Pilate particularly, the charges that are brought against him are that Jesus claimed to be a king. The sign on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. I mean, this flavor of kingship throughout the whole of Jesus' life. But nowhere in his whole three year of ministry was it as clearly represented as on this day as he rides into Jerusalem. It's clearest expression. And it is a happy day. But not all happy. There are a couple of details in the story again that cast some shadow on this event. In the midst of the celebration and the joy and the shouting and the singing, there's a couple of other things going on. And one is the fact that not everyone in the crowd was a fan of Jesus. Luke 19, verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You are not a king. Can't you hear what they're saying? 
And probably in the back, if not the front of their minds, is the reality that, that the Roman Empire had established a peace, not because they were a good and peaceable empire, but they established peace by crushing ruthlessly any hint of rebellion that arose. And now here in Jerusalem, you have somebody coming as king with a crowd of people affirming his kingship at a time when, when the buzz or the ferment for, for the Messiah's coming was at fever pitch. And I can just imagine the Pharisees, the leaders of the people, thinking, oh man, what's Rome going to do? What's Pilate going to do? Like, Jesus, for goodness sakes, make them stop. This could explode everything. This could destroy Jerusalem. Make them stop. And Jesus says, I, th I think with a smile on his face, Jesus says, I can't make them stop. I tell you, if they stop, the stones themselves would cry out and affirm that I am king. I am the son of God. I've left the throne of heaven. I am the king of the Jews. I've come here. I'm riding into Jerusalem, which is the physical representation of the reality of God on the earth. Coming to the temple, I'm coming to lay down my life to save the world. It is right that I be acclaimed as king today. It is appropriate and good because it's true. And if they shut up, then creation itself would have to start shouting and praising. No, I am not going to make them stop. I am the king. The other detail that casts a shadow on this is that, that there's a shadow in Jesus' own heart, frankly. The verses that follow our passage Beginning at verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. Twice in the scriptures, Jesus weeps. One at the tomb of Lazarus, and once here. And he says, oh, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, if you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as king. And he's hearing the crowd around him. But he, more than anyone on this whole, in this whole scene, Jesus alone knows what's going on. Jesus is not fooled by the affirmation of all the people around him. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to know that some, at least, of these very same people are going to call for his death before five days have gone by. He knows that. He, he knows that their affirmation of his kingship is rooted not in any sort of deep theological understanding of what God is doing in the world. It's rooted in the reality that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It says in the text that they're praising God because of all the things that they had seen. They loved Jesus because of what they had seen him doing, but they do not understand the nature of his kingship. And when they discover that he is not the kind of king that they're expecting or that they want, that all of this 
song and praise will be silenced and they'll be calling for his death. And Jesus knows that. And he knows that that Jerusalem and the people of God will ultimately reject him. And that because they do not recognize who he is, it will in fact lead to their destruction as a city. And about 40 years later, Jerusalem was reduced by Rome to rubble, burnt to the ground. And Jesus says, it's because you had no idea on this day who it was that was coming to you. You didn't recognize, they did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the arrival of the Son of God, the King of Israel, for you. There are, there are at least two kinds of people in the crowd that day. There are those who reject Jesus outright. You're not the king. Make them stop. And there are those who affirm Jesus on Sunday, but reject him on Friday because he does not measure up to what they think he was going to be and to what they think he should be. Jesus is the king. Whether people reject him outright or dismiss or ignore him later or worship him as I trust we do. Jesus is the king. Christians for centuries have affirmed that. That's become one of the central declarations of what it means for us to be a Christian, that Jesus is the king. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we understand that Jesus is the king. I'm not sure we know that in our day. I think that we think that Jesus is inviting himself to be king and he will be the king of those who accept that invitation. And maybe we think that, you know, if somebody rejects Jesus' invitation to be king, then he gets mad at them. Jesus isn't elected king. And yet our culture thinks that that it could be that way. You know, Christianity works for you. But it doesn't work for me. Had a conversation not very long ago with somebody who had been a part of church and, and this is quoting them exactly. It just doesn't work for me anymore. And I said, I hope graciously, I said, well, what, what does that mean? I said, is, is he Lord or is he not? I mean, whether something works for us has nothing to do with it. Jesus is the king. And people who have never heard of Jesus, Jesus is their king. People who have heard of him and rejected him, Jesus is their king. Jesus is my king. Jesus is your king. And I think that what is going on in this passage is just driving home the point that Jesus is king and his kingship can be received or rebelled against. Not not chosen or ignored in some middle ground. His kingship can be received or his kingship can be rebelled against. I think it's significant that in our passage today, in the verses immediately prior to it, Jesus has told a parable that involves a man going away in order to be crowned king. 
And there's a delegation of people that kind of follow him in order to agitate against his kingship, try to prevent his being crowned king. But then he returns, and those who rebelled against his kingship are put to death. That's right before this passage today. Immediately after our passage today is the verses that I've just read, where Jesus foresees and speaks the judgment of Jerusalem because they did not recognize the kingship of Jesus. And Jesus' kingship can be received and it can be rebelled against. And rebellion against Jesus' kingship brings judgment. We don't like the word judgment in our day. But I'm I'm not sure why we're surprised at judgment from God for those who reject his son as king. There's not a government on the planet that says to its people, it's just fine with us if you choose not to live under the rules of our country, of our land. That's fine. If it doesn't work for you, that's okay. No government would do that. And yet we think, I think, that God is, is, is petty or shallow or wrong somehow in judging those who reject what he has said about his son, Jesus the Christ. Those who rebel against the kingship of Jesus, there is judgment. If Jesus is the king of heaven and earth and nations and you and me, Uh, If we envision him riding on the donkey into Jerusalem in in a kind of a long-ago time that seems quite distant, what does it mean to translate that kingship into our lives today? Because the truth is, if Jesus is the king, then he is the king. He is the king of everything. He's, He's Lord over everything that I am and everything that belongs to me. In a time of crisis... For example, when there is is ongoing suffering or deterioration or pain, or if there's been a loss that is significant, our affirmation of the kingship of Jesus kind of gets put to the test, doesn't it? Do Do I release, do I surrender my life in this situation And continue to trust that Jesus, who is Lord, who is King, has me. That somehow he is exercising his good power and sovereignty in this situation. Jesus is my King, and whatever happens in my life, I trust Jesus, my Lord, with it. You know that that's not easy to do. And sometimes it's that very situation that, that takes us from acclaiming the kingship of Jesus on Sunday to questioning it on Friday. I thought that if I served Jesus, I thought that if I worshiped Jesus, I thought that if I tried to do right, as Jesus has said, I thought that he was obligated to make my life easier in some way. You know, we never kind of articulate it like that, but we say, why is this happening? 
Why is this happening? I thought God was supposed to be different than this. I thought God was supposed to make my life different than this. Why this hardship? And then our, our trust in the kingship of Jesus, in his absolute lordship of every facet of our lives, gets tested. And we wonder, is Jesus a good king? As parents, Brian and Ashley and everyone else with a child, the reality that Jesus is king, one of the implications of that is that we raise our kids as best we can, but we raise them as stewards of children. And that we, we are masters of our children by representation. They are not our children but they are God's children, and he is Lord of our children. That's not an easy thing to remember in the day-to-day either. But if Jesus is king of everything, that means my children are under his authority primarily. And my authority is a given authority that's meant to be an expression of our good God but Jesus is Lord of my kids and therefore Lord of their circumstances. And when my kids grow up and make choices that I don't like, and I come to the place where I need to release them and say, God, they are your children. Please take responsibility for them. That is not easy to do. But if Jesus is my king, he is king of my children. Jesus is king means he's king of our future of our individual futures when it comes to choice of a career or making a job change or should we move king of our future together we as the people of God Jesus is Lord do we trust Jesus with our future do we decide our future not based on what what our desires are even though that's part of the mix I don't want to say ignore them But do we make decisions for the future? Do we decide on job and home and church with one ear always open to Jesus, ready to do his will, as we sang earlier? Jesus is king of your next week and your 10 years from now and of our future as a church. He's king. And he gets to tell us what steps to take into the future. And that, by the way, is why it is so absolutely essential for us as individuals and as a group to do what we've tried to do this last half year or so, to fix our attention on Jesus, because he's not going to shout for our attention. And if we get used to looking at him and listening to him, then he will direct our future accordingly. But only as we fix ourselves upon him will we be able to hear and obey what he wants from us. Jesus is the king of my resources. He's the king of my time. He's the king of my money. It's not my money. He is the king of my body and how I use it and what I do with it. Jesus is king. And it's, it's his stuff. And he gets to tell me how to spend my time, how to spend my money. Jesus is king in terms of the scripture. 
my, this Bible, which is an English Standard Version Bible, is what is called a red letter edition. And even though I bought it, I hate red letter Bibles. Um, red letter Bibles have the words of Christ in red. And in truth, any red letter Bible should be entirely in red from Genesis to Revelation. Exodus and Jude and Daniel are the words of Christ. The revelation of Jesus by the Spirit of God, this is all his word. And what he says about his word, he says with authority. Um, in, in my own circle these days, there's someone who is, is dismissing or writing off parts of the Old Testament and part of the ways of God in the Old Testament because it doesn't, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't sit right, it doesn't seem like the character of God to them. And yet Jesus affirmed the law. Jesus said that the God of the Old Testament is my Father. And when Jesus says that, whether I understand or like that is authority for me with respect to the word of God. And then I need to wrestle and struggle with stuff that I don't understand or like. But Jesus is, is my, my standard of interpretation when it comes to the scripture. We affirm the Old Testament as Christians not because archaeology has proved a bunch of it to be correct. There's still a lot of questions out there. We affirm the Old Testament as the word, God, of word of God primarily because Jesus did, and he is our king. So Jesus is king with respect to the scriptures. I want to I encourage and ask you to think, even this morning, about the various facets of your life. Is there a crisis that you are facing? Is there some kind of pain that is in your life right now? Is there a change that you are anticipating? Again, a move to a new home or a career shift. Is there an expenditure that's looming on the horizon that you're thinking about? As you think about your children, as you think about your use of time, What does it look like in the area that God is bringing to your mind right now? What does it look like to consciously surrender that to King Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, this area is yours. What would you have me do? Read, pray. There's wisdom from God. Seek counsel from the community that is the people of God. But in that, listen for the voice of Jesus. And one last thing for today in terms of the kingship of Jesus, and we have to end here because the kingship, the king, any understanding of the kingship of Jesus that doesn't land here is oppressive. Jesus is a good king. I just started reading uh, Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler and am struck by Hitler as a leader, how, how much of what he did 
came from weakness and fear, a need to control, a need to prove himself. And he was a king over millions for a time. Jesus is not that kind of king. Jesus is grounded, he is centered, he knows who he is, he has nothing to prove, he is good. He is king not as much for his own sake as to bring glory to his father and to do good to his people. Jesus is a good king. Anything that Jesus, I was going to say asks, but in truth, he's a king. So anything that Jesus tells you to do, he does because it's good for you. He does because it's good for you. Again, I was struck hearing the kids sing downstairs the song Amazing Love. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. And then the chorus, Amazing Love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? That, that question, how can it be? That's a question of marvel. Like, think about it. Jesus, like, how could it possibly be that you who were the king of heaven and earth and through whom everything came into existence, everything belongs to you, you have absolute right of rule over everything that exists, how could it possibly be that you, a king, would die for me? Jesus is that kind of king. And when he rode into Jerusalem, people did not know that. Even when he was on the cross with the sign, King of the Jews, they did not know that. That Jesus, their king, was giving his life for them. And because we know that Jesus, our king, laid down his very life for us, then we know that when Jesus says, trust me with your kids, trust me with your illness, don't buy that house. Do spend your money over here. Need you to think about the poor. When Jesus says those kinds of things, that comes to us from the one who gave his life for us and we know that it will be a good word from him. Jesus is your king and he is mine. And we do not reject his kingship outright as the Pharisees did, but there is a danger that we may sing his kingship on Sunday and then refuse it on Tuesday or Friday or Saturday. Let us be the kind of people who live under his lordship consciously and with joy, trusting that he is good. Can we do that? Can we help each other do that? Let's pray. Blessed are you, Jesus, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amazing love, how can it be that you would die for us? Jesus, on Sunday morning, right now, it's easy for us to acknowledge you and to say, yes, Lord, you are king. We ask for your help in living under your kingship tomorrow. 
and the next day and in all the moments that make up our lives. We trust you this morning. Help us to trust you throughout the week. You are king. We are your servants and your children. We praise you and surrender to you. Thank you that you are good in all that you do. Enable us to see that goodness and to trust your goodness when seeing it is difficult. In your name we pray. Amen. A closing song, number 200.